Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Um, thank you, Michael, and thank you, Steve and, and Pam, who's the chancellor here. Um, when we first started talking about it, um, we, we uh, were going to do something just with the uh, Center for Homeland Security, maybe 200 people, and, and Pam, at the last minute, opened up the doors to share your community with you. So um, thank you so much, and, and thank you to everyone else who helped out. There's been dozens of people working on this for weeks, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful on behalf of the children in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and all the world for what you've done. And thank you for coming, and those of you who weren't able to get in here who are watching this on a TV screen, um, thanks for your patience and, and not starting a riot here. <laughs> and for some of you who weren't able to come, um, I just want to thank you. Um, the book, Three Cups of Tea, um, you know, most of you might know what it means, Three Cups of Tea, and we'll talk about that later. But I think the interesting thing is the subtitle of the book. When I first submitted the original manuscript for Three Cups of Tea, um, the people in Manhattan, the publisher, they picked the subtitle, One Man's Mission to Fight Terrorism, One School at a Time. And I'm a veteran, military veteran, and I also... Um, you know, very conscious of what's been going on, but I, I told the publisher I do not want a subtitle about fighting terrorism because I do this to promote peace. And they they resisted, so finally I summoned a jirga, which is like a tribal council in Manhattan. It's very imposing. You know, I'm from a little guy from Montana, and I went to the high towers in Manhattan, and I met with Susan Kennedy, who's the CEO of Penguin Putnam, and, and Nancy Shepard, and Carolyn Colburn. And so... Um, I, I stated my case, and then they said, you know, son, you need to learn a couple things. This is your first book. Only 8% of nonfiction books make a profit, and two-thirds of all bestsellers are pre-chosen by the publisher. We'd like to promote your book, but we need to have you fighting terrorism if we really want to pitch the book. <laughs> so, you know, I finally conceded, but having worked in Pakistan, Afghanistan for a long time, you never strike a deal without driving a hard bargain. So I told them, if the hardcover does not do well, I want the title for, this, for the paperback changed to One Man's Mission to Promote Peace, One School at a Time. So the hardcover came out, and it didn't do very well. And I was in Pakistan in the earthquake area. It was around Christmas time in 2006. And I got a call from Paul Slovak, who's a new editor on the book. And he said, guess what? We've changed the subtitle. And so this book came out on January 30th, Promoting Peace, One School at a Time. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list ever since then. And I just got an email today that it went over one million copies last week. But what it, what it really was about, even when this book came out, there was no national TV, only two big cities, book review editors did an official book review on this. No national, we've never been on national NPR. What it was, it was about communities. It was about women's groups. It was about book clubs. It was about churches, synagogues, mosques, and, and people across America resonating that we yearn for peace. And we are willing to, to start building bridges and thinking about peace one, one school, one student at a time. And ultimately, um, I, was, I was corrected today by Michael. I said, politics won't bring peace. He said, politics will never bring peace, but people bring peace. And it's communities like you and, and our own bigger global community that can bring peace in the world.
I, I love going and talking around, um, going talking to students and kids in schools. And one of the first questions I ask the students is I say, how many of you have talked in great detail to your grandparents or your elders? Am I speaking out of this one or this one? <laughs> Both, okay. How many of you have talked in great detail to your grandparents or elders about World War II or the Depression or the Civil Rights Movement or the Vietnam War? Or some of you have had your parents or grandparents come from a distant land and become American citizens. And in America today, Steve, how many students put their hands up? About 10%. And that's pretty common in schools. About 10% of the kids say, yeah, I've talked to my grandpa about World War II. If I ask that same question in Pakistan or Afghanistan or even in Africa, 90% of the hands come up, even 100%. And I think it's a tragedy that in our country, We've lost the oral tradition. We've also lost the, how we pass our folklore, our culture, and our heritage. Usually it's from down to second generation. And I think it's a great tradition. And often, that's probably the only negative thing about literacy, is when you bring in education and literacy, often the storytelling tradition gets eradicated. So in honor of that, I'd like to tell you a little story called Three Cups of Tea. Okay, where's... Uh, so I, my parents, when I was three weeks old, they heard that they needed teachers in Tanzania at a girls' school. So in 1958, I went to Tanzania, where I grew up for the first 14, 15 years of my life. And I call it a paradise. It was post-colonial. It was a new democracy. President Julius Nyerere had this slogan called Uhuru Naomoja, means oneness and freedom. I also got to go to school with children from two dozen different countries. I went to school with Muslims and Christians and Jews and Sikhs and Hindus. And to me, that was the way the world was. Well, um, finally, in uh, 1972, uh, the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center, which is what my father was one of the founders of, they had an inauguration, and President Julius Nyerere first spoke, and then my father got up and talked. And he talked about this hospital being the community hospital, being about their hospital. And then he said something that was very profound. He said, in 10 years, all the department heads in this hospital will be Tanzanian. And the expats scoffed at my father, and there was chuckling, because they didn't believe that that could actually happen. Well, we came back to America, and my father actually died. He was in, um, he was in, in his mid-40s, and he got cancer. But well, we got the annual report from the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center 10 years later, and all the department heads were Tanzanian. And even today, um, they're still Tanzanian. And I think that's a great um, message that people can be empowered and determine their own, um, you know, determine their own course, and they can make appropriate decisions. So um, when this hospital got built, it came time to go back to America. And I was really looking forward to coming back to America. You know, I missed things. I never got to see, like, baseball games and Fourth of Julys and fireworks and Cracker Jacks. And it's kind of dating me, maybe. Is there still Cracker Jacks around? Okay. <laughs> so I came back to America. Well, my first week in high school at St. Paul, Minnesota, I got beat up. I got a big black eye. Kids said, you're not from Africa. And I wanted to run back home to Africa to the safety and sanctuary of that wonderful paradise that I grew up in. But you know, 
that was the first time in my life that I learned what the word racism meant. I learned about prejudice, and it wasn't in Africa, it was here in America. Well, in June of 75, we were completely broke having worked overseas, my parents, so I did something that was not popular at the time. Four days after high school, I joined the U.S. Army, right after the Vietnam War. And a lot of uh, my fellow classmates, they thought it was kind of funny, but we were completely broke. And I not only wanted to serve my country, but I wanted to get the GI Bill. It was actually when I was in Germany in the military that I saw young women and men from all over America, from very diverse backgrounds. And it really made me appreciate the strength of our country. And it's not in our commonality, but it's in our great diversity. Okay. Three Cups of Tea begins with my youngest sister, Krista. Krista was a very special girl. It was because she had severe epilepsy and she struggled with everything she did. She never once complained. And Krista would spend like an hour or two before school every night. She would pack her bags and she would do her homework and she would get her lunch ready, very organized, and it would take her a while. I'm kind of like five-minute bed-to-bus kind of guy. You know, I'm out the bed and out the door and I'm sitting in school. And, and uh, so Krista, she was, and Krista never said a crossword in her whole life, and she inspired us. Well, Krista saw the baseball movie in summer of 92 called The Field of Dreams. Have any of you seen that movie? And uh, incredible, you know, it's a, it's a very inspiring movie. If you build it, they will come. So for her 23rd birthday, Krista was in Minneapolis and she packed her bags and on July 23rd, 1992, Krista had her bags packed. She was ready to go to the Field of Dreams. But when my mother went to wake up Krista in the morning, Krista died in her sleep from a massive seizure. And it was very devastating for all of us. So at the time, I was kind of a dirtbag climber. And I thought, I'm going to pick the biggest, baddest mountain on the planet to climb for Krista. And that mountain is K2, the world's second highest mountain in Pakistan. And Krista had a little amber necklace that she had gotten in, in, in the, on the Indian Ocean coast in, in Malindi in Kenya. And so I wanted to put that amber necklace on top of K2 in honor of my sister Krista. So here we are. Um, this is the Karakoram or Karakoram mountain range. It's the greatest consolidation of high peaks in the world. 64 peaks above 23,000 feet high in a 100-mile area. Now, in Colorado, you know, I say us mountain people, it's easy to describe that, but when you go down south in the U.S., you have to tell people, you go down the freeway five miles and then pretend you're going straight up. <laughs> and that's just how high that peak is. You can put the granite mass of 84 Matterhorns inside of K2 to fill it up. Um, this is, we went up here on the West Ridge here. The first attempt on K2 in 1909, the Duke of Abruzzi reached up to here. He was wearing hobnail boots, tweed jacket, and a tie, <laughs> eating, eating cans of sardines. Now, we didn't have a lot of money. I hope there's no outdoor retailers here, but if there is, my, my, please accept my apologies. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, so we had two-season family camping tents from Logan, Utah, $50 each. This tent is a French Legionnaire's tent designed for the Algerian desert. And, um, <laughs> this is, uh, his name is Etienne Finet. He's a Frenchman, and he was quite happy with his tent. This is an original North Face prototype tent called a wind tunnel. It's about 25 years old when it went up there. And then we did have one five-season expedition tent.
This is our motley climber of um, um, 12 climbers. The gentleman in the middle, he left after a week because he said there's no alcohol in Pakistan. Um, and that's true. I, I, my wife says I'm not supposed to say where he's from, but um, he left after a week. And th but this is our motley crew of climbers who start on K2. Um, here we have you know, sights and sound and avalanche and um, remember the Frenchman with the, you go ahead here, the, um, the Frenchman with the French Legionnaire's tent. This, this is what happened to his toes um, when he was climbing up on K2. And here we are going up K2. This is the West Ridge. We had a Pakistan visa, but we didn't have a Chinese visa, but we didn't see any gun-toting Chinese border guards, so we did go into China, and then we went back up here into Pakistan <laughs> and all the way up to the top. Well, finally, 78 days later, 78 days later, it was time to go home. I was weak, I was exhausted, I was emaciated, but most of all, when I put my hand in my pocket, I'd feel that amber necklace, and I felt as if I let my sister down. If you read Three Cups of Tea, the first chapter starts, the title is starts with an F word that we don't like to talk about a lot about in America. It's, it says failure. And you know, we all fail in our lives and we all make mistakes and I failed on K2 and coming down the mountain, I really felt as if I had failed and I let my sister down. And you know, all of us, say so we all make mistakes. I flunked my first driver's license test. I was parallel parking and I totaled the car. And <laughs> we we had a we were kind of poor at the time. We just had one of those little Honda Civics and you know my my dad had to commute to work so it was quite um I I um I have not not done so well on tests um you know um with relationships sometimes and and so when I submitted the manuscript to the publisher, they, they told me, uh, this was uh, Viking, they said, you know, Greg, you cannot start the word, the book, with the word failure in America. You need the word, you should put in like hope or, or the joy of going home or something like that. And, you know, I told them, I said that, um, I said, that was one little argument I wanted. I said, you know, we've all made mistakes and we all fail. And um, so that word failure is still in the book. And when I come to that moment in life, and sometimes, you know, when, when all of us come to those moments when we fail or make mistakes, remember this Persian proverb, when it is dark, you can see the star. When it is dark, you can see the star. And uh, for those of you who've been there, this is actually Orizaba. It's a Mexican volcano, but I love this climbing photo to end the climbing sequence. So this is uh, Mount Orizaba. Here we are, this is our Motley crew. Remember, we had 12 climbers. This is me and uh, Jonathan Pratt and Dan Mazur and Gulam the kitchen boy. That was all that remained when it was time to go home. And I had to walk back down the Balturo Glacier, carry about 90 pounds. I was very, really struggling. I was disoriented, I was weak, and, and a local man named Musifer came along and he carried my load and he, he also gave me his uh, payucha. Payucha means salty. It's uh, the recipe is it's green tea with baking soda, a pinch of salt, a dash of salt, goat's milk, and then one golden nugget called mar. It's rancid yak butter that's been aged for 15 years like the finest French cheese. Well, finally, uh, five days later, 
when I was supposed to get to a village called Ascoli, I made a mistake. I was supposed to go right and go into the north bank in this village called Ascoli to catch a jeep. But I took a wrong turn, and I stumbled into this village called Corfe. And as I got up to the village, a bunch of kids started tugging on my kind of weather-beaten clothes, and they said, you need to meet the village chief. And as I got to the village, there was this stout, gruff man with a silver beard named Haji Ali. And first he said to me, "Assalamu alaikum," meaning peace be with you. And then he looked at me from head to toe. You know, I was real gangly. I had my hair was all messed up, weather beaten. I had a big rip on my pants here. And he looked at me and he said, "Chizale." Now I, I'm from the Midwest, so the best translation I can think of "chizale" means "what the heck." <laughs> and then he said, he looked at me and said, "Son, welcome to our village, but first you need to take a bath." <laughs> and so he took me down to the silty Braldu River. I had to wash up. This is very cold, icy water. And they said, okay, now you can come to my house for tea. And I've learned many things having worked in remote areas in the Karakoram and Hindu Kush and Pamir Mountains. One out of three children there dies before the age of one. One out of three children born dies before the age of one. The literacy rate in many areas is about two or three percent. Um, you know, you can imagine if just about... 20 of you would stand up and you'd be the only literate people. It gives you a lot of power. What's most profound, though, is the impact that it's had on the women in the village. Many of the women now tell me that the men leave the village to try and get jobs in the city or they work on road construction crews or as dishwashers. And only about half the men get a job. And often to get a job, they have to pool their resources. And um, they might get about $400, $500. For, that's a pretty good income for a year there. But who's left behind? It's the women. The women tell me now that their workload has doubled, the heavy manual labor. We also did a study. We took the, the hemoglobin, the red blood cell level, of 18 women in 1998. Most of these women here had a hemoglobin of 8 to 9. Most of the women here, your hemoglobin is 12 to 13. If you had a hemoglobin of 8, if there's some physicians here, you would probably be in the, in the ambulance going to the hospital to get a pint of blood. These are menstruating, childbearing women, and they're up against staggering odds. So I walked into Corfe. This was actually the first picture I took. I was a stranger, and those people were stranger to me. And we had yet to have three cups of tea with each other. First cup, you're a stranger. Second cup, a friend. And third cup, you become family. But the process takes several years. And it's about relationships, and it's about what Steve and Michael and the community, Pikes Peak community, the Center for Homeland Security, the, the university here, we're trying to bring communities and empowering communities. We can't, uh, you know, the, pol the political scene, that will never really bring about peace and change. It has to start here in our communities. And so, um, anyways, this is really exciting for me. <laughs> um, so, you know, in America, we have two-minute football drills and uh, 30-minute power lunches and six-second sound bites, but over there it takes three cups of tea. Well, um, I asked about a school. They were very embarrassed. Finally, they took me behind the village. I saw 84 children sitting in the dirt. There was five girls, 79 boys, about eight slate boards. Most of the children were riding with sticks in the sand. And when a young girl named Chocho came up to me, it was very cold. It was an autumn day. She said, you know, we're, we're cold, we're shivering. Could you please build us a warm school? 
I made a very rash promise that day, and I said, I promise I'll build a school for you. And little did I know that that would change my life forever. So I came back to America. Now, I have I had no clue how to fundraise, and let alone $12,000. And um, so what I did is I went to the local library. And the li- any librarians in here? Uh, give them a big round. There's, there's a few librarians here. Okay. And the librarians... The librarians and I, they said, well, let's look up the name of 580, well, I looked up the name of 580 celebrities and movie stars and sports heroes and kind of affluent, you know, philanthropic type people. And then I proceeded over about two and a half months to hand type 580 letters. And I, I did learn how to type pretty well in the Army, but it took me about 10 weeks. And I started writing letters, Dear Michael Jordan, Dear Sylvester Stallone, Dear Oprah, I need to build a school in Pakistan. Can you please help me? Well, guess what happened? Well, nothing happened. Finally, around Christmas time, I got one check in the mail from Tom Brokaw, the newscaster, for $100, and it said, good luck, Greg. <laughs> he happens to have gone to University of South Dakota with me, so that's kind of, a, or we are the same alumni there. Then I got frustrated. I sold my climbing gear. Then I sold my car. I had a big old Buick that I inherited from my grandpa. I sold it for 500 bucks. I sold everything I owned, pretty much. But by springtime, I'd only raised $2,400. And my mother was a principal at Westside Elementary School in River Falls, Wisconsin. She invited me to come and talk to the kids there. And I spent two days there. This is in the spring of 94. I was really inspired. When I got ready to leave, a fourth grader named Jeffrey came up to me, and he looked at me deadpan in the eye, and he said, I have a piggy bank at home, and I'm going to help you raise money to build that school in Pakistan. I didn't think anything of it. And six weeks later, Westside School had raised 62,340 pennies. And when you think about it, it wasn't the celebrities, it wasn't the movie stars, it wasn't the sports heroes, it wasn't even us adults. It was children in all their innocence and purity reaching out to children halfway around the world to help them build a school. And what did they do it they what did they do it with? They did it with a penny. You know, what can you buy with a penny in Colorado Springs? Uh, maybe half a Tootsie roll or something, but in Pakistan and Afghanistan and Africa, you can buy a pencil with a penny. And it's not that a pencil is so important, but what education does is it gives a child hope. And if you have hope, you can do anything. If you want to, you know, we look at that maybe on a bigger scale. You know, if you fight terrorism, it's based in fear. But if you promote peace, it's based in hope. And the real enemy, whether it's in Afghanistan or in America or in Africa, the real enemy is ignorance. It's ignorance that breeds hatred. And to overcome that, we need to have the courage to have compassion and look beyond fear and also have the, you know, really realize how much education can do. So um, now we have this program called Pennies for Peace. Christian here? You want to come up here? This is Christian, who is now the director of Pennies for Peace. She's an ex-Montessori teacher, and she's um, uh, from Evergreen. Um, We've started this program called Pennies for Peace, and what's happened is it's just kind of um, just exploding. So... 
Um, now Christiane is in charge of Pennies for Peace, and I'd just like her to share with you a couple words about Pennies for Peace. Um, thanks. Well, I think, if anything, um, Pennies for Peace is really evidence of Greg Mortensen and Central Asia Institute's broader vision of education, not just to bring education where it has never been before in Pakistan and Afghanistan, but to enrich and broaden education here where it flourishes, which is really an essential component of building those bridges that Greg talks about. Um, Pennies for Peace has grown from sort of a small backburner incidental program to a real core part of the mission of Central Asia Institute. We have kids in every state in this country doing Pennies for Peace, and actually in the last 12 months we've gone global. We have kids in, around the world doing Pennies for Peace on every continent with the exception of Antarctica and Africa. And we figure if there are schools in Africa that can do Pennies for Peace, we'd really rather have them raising money for schools in their own continent. Um, in addition, what's been very interesting is Pennies for Peace is really for a broad range of kids from preschool to high school. You know, we, Preschoolers totally get the idea of helping. They get the idea of pennies can make a difference. They might not understand the broader reaches of it. And when you get into the high school age, you can really address very powerful uh, issues of our day. And what's interesting to me is in the last year, year and a half or so, we actually have colleges doing pennies for peace. And they take that idea of, of cultural education and broadening their horizons, and they look to their professors and they look to their community to deepen their under, understanding of the issues in the world. So um, go out and spread the word. Thanks. So finally, um, with the help of a Swiss physicist, a very cantankerous man, but a very brilliant man, Jean Herny, um, who helped with the final funding, um, I was able to go back to Pakistan a year later. I was feeling pretty proud of myself. I got the money. I went back there. I bought the school supplies, loaded them up on these big old Bedford trucks, and went three days up the Karakoram Highway, this magnificent drive. And finally, I got back to Corfe. And again, there was Haji Ali, the village chief. You'll get to see him in a little bit. Um, but he first greeted me, and then he, he couldn't believe that I'd come back because he didn't really think that I would fulfill my promise. And he, um, you know, there's no telephone, no communication, no email there. And not only did I come back, I brought the school supplies. But again, he shook his head at me, and he said, Chizale. <laughs> he said, you know, son, we're grateful for what you're doing. But you've made two big mistakes here. First of all, we don't start building in the winter time, right before winter time in the mountains. Number two, if you really need to build a school, then we have to build a bridge first. And I hadn't really thought of that. So I had to come back to America, raise 10,000 more dollars. And um, I went back in 95. And in 10 weeks, they built a 284-foot span bridge over the Braldo River. This is 18 miles from the nearest road, and there are five 800-pound steel cables that they carried 18 miles up the mountain roads. You can imagine carrying 800-pound cable up to, is it Monument? It's about 20 miles from here. And carrying that on your back up the mountain trails. And this was an amazing engineering feat that they did over there, and I realized they were very serious. Well, of course, no story would be complete without a love story. So that was one thing that Penguin thought that would be okay to put in the book. Um, I was um, at a fundraising dinner on September 13th, 95. It was at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. Sir Edmund Hillary, who was my 
hero, one of my childhood heroes, who recently just passed away, and I'd like to honor what he's done um, for peace and, and promoting education in the world. Well, Sir Edmund was speaking, but he um, went on and on about the Queen's coronation. It was getting pretty late, and so finally I, got, I went to the back of the room to get some fresh air, and there was this beautiful woman in a dress wearing black combat boots, and her name was Tara Bishop. And six days later, we got married. <laughs> and we're living happily ever after now in Montana. So for those of you that are facing uh, struggles, um, there, I was 38, so um, there's still hope for, for all of us. And, <laughs> and Tara, was, she was a graduate student. She's a clinical psychologist. She taught me with, with another a Pakistani gentleman how to use a computer and also this really cool thing called cut and paste. I could start writing hundreds of fundraising letters. And in Pakistan, I started learning how to use the local laptops. It's called a slate board. Okay. The whole village participated in building the school, the elders, the children. It was so inspiring to build a school, but it was kind of going slow. Um, this is uh, the man from Corfe carrying. Um, these are trusses and beams for the roof, 18 miles up to Corfe. The, the really amazing thing, though, is the gentleman in the front, he's the imam or the head religious man for the village. His name is Sher Taki. In their communities, and I don't know if there's any clergy or any rabbis here or imams, but um, in their communities, they're not supposed to do manual labor. They're supposed to, to read the, you know, the holy book and be advisors. Well, not only did Sher Taki came down, he carried the first load back to the village, symbolizing his advocacy for education in the village. And when the elders saw him, they literally wept because they knew that, um, that he had um, embraced having a school in their village. Well, you can see three years later, we hadn't gotten very far. And there's Haji Ali. You get to meet him now. Here's a silver beard, and in his right-hand pocket, he has goat jerky that's marinated in Naswar. It's green chewing tobacco. And you'll see a little latch key around his neck. And um, one day, Haji Ali noticed you know, I was getting frustrated so he took me by the wayside and he said, again, he said, cheese a first. And then he said, you know, you know um, son, we've been here for hundreds of years and we're so grateful for what you're doing, but you need to do one thing. You need to sit down and be quiet. And he said it in a lot more harsh words than I can repeat here. And not only that, he took my plumb line, my receipts and records, and he locked them up in his little earthen locker along with his British musket gun and his prayer beads and his shank of ibex meat and then he came back and said there everything will be just fine don't you worry well of course i was horrified and six weeks later guess what happened the school got built and it's kind of at the basis of what we're doing um, and why i think things are really going well is it's because the communities are empowered we require that the communities match our contribution of free um, skilled labor and materials with free sweat equity, free manual labor, free land, free resources, free wood. And it's a very um, equitable kind of relationship. But th what that does is it, it empowers and gets the communities vested in their own school. Um, a more recent example, um, those of, I think, some, did you get, some of you get this when you came in? There's an example about why I think that community involvement from day one is so important. Um, in 2005, on May 13th, Friday the 13th, there was a story that broke in Newsweek about the 
alleged uh, Quran being flushed into the toilet in Guantanamo Bay, and spontaneous riots erupted across Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they hit the villages that we work in. And one village is called Baharak, which is in northern, it's in Badakhshan province. And uh, there was two uh, firebrand mullahs who had come. They're not from that area, but they got about 2,000 people riled up, and they went on a rampage in the main bazaar. They destroyed all the foreign NGOs, the land, their vehicles, their computers, everything. At the end of the bazaar was our beautiful brand new school in Barak. It was fresh lime green paint, the window panes. It just had gotten done like a couple weeks earlier. And the, the uh, 2,000 people, they stopped there. You know, just imagine, um, it's like, there. I mean, this is as the riot was heating up, and the peer who were the village elders, they stopped the crowd and said, you know, don't harm this school, this is our school. And it was the only foreign um, building, you know, that was brought in, that was left standing, and, and it was because it's their school, it's their community school. Um, thank you. Um, and we have... You know, maybe I'm talking about micro things, but I can also, I think it's also important to learn from our lesson. Did I talk about the Marshall Plan yet? Okay, sorry. <laughs> so, you know, my, perhaps my main suggestion to our government and, and our leaders is that what we're doing in Afghanistan or Iraq, well, there's several things, but one is that we've designed the reconstruction as a very centralized process. And all you need to do is look back at the Marshall Plan after World War II. It was a brilliant plan, and the architects who designed it were genius. But the re what, why the Marshall Plan worked so well, especially like in Italy, is because it was provincially based. It wasn't centralized. Um, we've centralized the reconstruction in Afghanistan and Iraq. We're trying to set up this centralized government, but it's in a provincial society, multi-ethnic, pluralistic type of society. And even with a simple, you know, just a little bit, we say masala, um, we could really change the scope of this whole context, and that's actually starting to happen now. I think the DOD, the State Department, um, we've, never, we've never taken dollar federal funding. I don't think we ever will, but I think it's really imperative that our tax dollars be really used in an appropriate way, and, and if you empower communities find the people who can really do and, and work with the communities, then you can really make a difference. So um, here we go. So it's time to open the school, and four years later, all these people came, about 2,000 people came, this little village, it was a joyous day, and the kids put a tomar, that's a colorful lapel around their neck. It's, it's usually designed, it's for young babies when they're first born to ward away the evil spirit so they don't die, but all the kids put on their tomar, you see that colorful lapel. But if you look and see, the kids are happy, but you look at Sikinder, he's the taller guy with the orange hair. He doesn't have, he hasn't dyed his hair, he's starving from protein malnutrition. He has a disease called Kwashiorkor disease, that's why he has orange hair. And Fatima, on his right, you can see she has lice in her hair. But despite those maladies, you can also see their joy at being able to go to school. Well, um, I decided, now I had a, you know, I had a wife and I had a child, and I had, you know, one school had gotten built, and I'd learned my lesson to empower the communities. So I decided I would dedicate my life to helping promote education and, um, you know, building schools and literacy in this part of the world. Well, what happened 
is that I had my first uh, a fatwa issued against me. And the first fatwa was banishing me from the country because I was a non-Muslim helping children go to school. So I sought out the advice of Said Abbas Rizvi. He's the head Shiite imam in northern Pakistan. He's a very powerful man. And if you look at his, his uh, um, headpiece, it's black. It means he's a descendant of Muhammad, the prophet. And I asked Said Abbas what I should do. And he said, well, let me... Um, find out. So he wrote a uh, kind of wanting to clarify the fatwa. So he wrote to the council of ayatollahs in Komiran, which is the head of the Shiite uh, uh, you know, devotees. And several months later, I was summoned into the inner sanctum of the Imam Bara Mosque. It was very imposing, and I thought, you know, this is it. I'm going to get booed out of the country. But instead, Said Abbas brought me a red velvet box. He opened it, and in that letter, in the box was an ornate letter written the Farsi or Persian script. And it read, Mismillah um, Manorahim, in the name of uh, Allah, the merciful, the beneficial. And then it had a salutation for Said Abbas. And then it said, we have reviewed your case, and in our Holy Quran, education is encouraged for all children. And furthermore, what this man is doing in your midst is in the highest principles of Islam. And then it got a little scholarly. It mentioned that the first word in the revelation in the Quran to Muhammad the prophet is Ikra. And Ikra in Arabic means read. In the first two chapters, it, it implores people to seek quest, to quest for knowledge. And so, um, anyways, it gave approval and blessings. And, and with that letter, then we started getting dozens and dozens of proposals, especially for girls' schools. Now, why is educating girls so important? I learned as a child in Africa, there's an African proverb that says, if you educate a boy, you educate an individual. But if you educate a girl, you educate a community. And why is that? It's because often young men leave the village. They don't come back. They don't send money back. But the women, the girls are stay behind. They become mothers, and the value of education goes on in the community. Several global studies show that if you educate a girl to at least a fifth grade level, it does three important things. Number one, reduce infant mortality. Number two, reduce the population explosion. And number three, improve the quality of health and of life itself. Um, a very good example of female literacy and population, um, you say population, um, what's the word? There's a scholar. Correlation is in Bangladesh, in the 60s, um, they launched in late 60s a massive campaign to get all the women, females, educated in Bangladesh. Sometimes Bangladesh is somewhat chided as, you know, I've heard it called the armpit of Asia or really, you know, backward place. But what happened in Bangladesh is that the female literacy rate went from 1970 about 22%. Today it's over 70%. And if you look at a population, a demographic graph, the population in Bangladesh is just starting to reach an apex now. And if you talk to like Amartya Sen, who's a Nobel Prize economist at Harvard, or um, Jeffrey Sachs, another, he wrote a book called The End of Poverty. The most important thing that happened there was that female literacy had an impact on the demographic or population growth. And we're facing a lot of problems today. We're facing problems of security. We're facing problems of, of um, you know, global warming, or AIDS, um, you know, energy. Uh, utilization. We're, we're fighting wars over oil and water resources. I think the main problem is that there's too many people on the planet and we're not 
uh, you know, we're not using our resources properly. And if you really want to curb population in these exploding countries, the, the most and best way you can do it is through uh, female education and literacy. I've also had the privilege to talk at great length with Islamic scholars about the Quran and what the Quran mandates. Um, in the Quran, it's very well spelled out that when a young man goes on jihad, he first needs permission and blessings from his mother. And if he doesn't get that permission, it's very shameful or disgraceful. And jihad, it's important to clarify that jihad means a quest. Now, um, that quest can be a spiritual endeavor, it could be going on to school, or a jihad can also be misscrewed into you know, being a jihadi or a terrorist. But a man first has to get permission from his mother. If a mother's educated, she's much less likely to condone her son going into violence. After 9-11, the Taliban actually had a high desertion rate and they were struggling to get recruits. This is before the U.S. and the coalition before he went in there. And mainly they targeted large swaths of illiterate, impoverished society because educated women were actually refusing to allow their sons to join the Taliban. Now, I've been criticized for saying some of this stuff because some people say, well, Greg, that's all, that's all great, but all the 9-11 hijackers were educated. And that's certainly true. Some of them even had university degrees but nobody bothered to check their mothers. Nearly all their mothers were illiterate. And I really doubt, you know, had their mothers had an education, that the whole world might be a different place today. And, you know, when you... I've talked to some of these really despot mullahs, extremists, and they don't fear the bullet, but what they do fear is the pen. And their greatest enemy is not... You know, it's not only boys, but they fear more girls going to school because when those girls grow up, they become mothers and they have lost their ideological way to control the hearts and minds and get future re recruits or jihadis. Um, if, you're, if you're really interested, um, Amartya Sen wrote a book called Development is Freedom and he goes on and on about educating girls. Um, there's also a, a very simple manual called What Works in Girls' Education by the Council on Foreign Relations. You can read it in two hours. You can become an expert on girls' education. Um, we'll make sure that there's some in the library here, but um, it's kind of, it's pretty practical. Amartya Sen said that one dollar that you invest in girls' education in the third world, the return on that after about a generation, about 20 years, is, is uh, $54. Now, even venture capitalists here, you can't get a better return on that than $54 for one buck after 20 years. I, maybe, maybe some speculators can, but not me. <laughs> so, um, now I've got some really good news. I've been in... Um, I've only talked to 60,000, not 160,000 people, but uh, <laughs> I, I've been in about 130 cities in the last year, and I've talked to about 60,000 people, and I asked this question. I'm going to ask it here tonight. How many of you know the fact that in Afghanistan today, there are 5.2 million children in school? 1.8 million are female. And in 2000, during the Taliban heyday, only 
800,000 kids were in school. So you want to put your hand up. I can see if one, two in the back. Okay, sir, I got you. And three. And you haven't heard me say this before, right? Okay, three people. So that makes the total about 25 people out of 60,000. Now, to me, that's the single most inspiring, incredible news to come out of that country. And it's a tragedy that the media, the government, and even uh, all of us who we've sacrificed so much, we've put so much into you know, promoting peace or fighting terrorism, that none of us are aware of that fact. And to me, that's the single most important news to come out of that country. And I think it should be broadcast from every mountaintop you know, in this land. And now, but the other thing is that in the last about 16 months, the Taliban have destroyed or bombed or shut down about 450 mostly girls schools. If you look at that, this from, you know, kind of more analytical perspective, and I ask, you know, the best answers I get are from kids. We talked to kids this morning. They had some really good answers. Why do the Taliban want to bomb girls' schools and not boys' schools. Why don't they want the girls to go to school? There was a, um, how old was that young student? Second grader today. And she was, she hit it right on. You know, ultimately, what they fear most is those girls are going to grow up and become mothers and the, and the value of education will be gone from the community. She also said that they want to keep women down. They want them to work. They don't want them to, to seek knowledge and, and, you know, quest and, and I, you know, I really think that if, if you really look at their greatest fear, it's in girls' education, getting the girls educated. And that's where we need to put our main emphasis. The, what happens is a girls' school gets bombed, gets shut down, and gets written off the government records. But if you go back to many of these villages several months later, you'll find those kids still trying to go to school, either in the outdoors or in a sheltered, you know, seclusion. And, um, to me, that's where we should put our every effort and energy to support those brave, you know, courageous young students. So this is Hushe School. Now we're going back a little bit in history. 1998, we opened, this is our eighth school. There was 12 girls there in the front row. My only request is that they increase the number of girls by 10% a year. Of course, they don't know how to do their math there. And one year later, this is what happened. <laughs> and now there's two rows of girls in Hushe. And if you ask most men here, What's the proudest moment in your life? Most men there will say it's the birth of my firstborn son. That's like life's greatest event over there. Well, not Aslam. He's a gentleman on the far left. And Aslam is talked about in the book, Three Cups of Tea. Aslam said that the proudest moment in my life is to see my two daughters going to school. And this young woman on the extreme far right, her name is Shakila. Shakila start, started writing with sticks in the sand. Today she's in her second year of medical school in Lahore in Pakistan. She's scoring in the 90s. She'll not only become the first physician, female physician, the first physician to come out of this whole region, and she wants to come back and work in her village. Her dad, Assam, said, you should be a teacher, Shakila, because a doctor is really messy work, but she's, she's uh, determined to uh, should become a physician. This is Aziza. Aziza is from the tribal areas on the Afghan-Pakistan border. She lives in a valley called Charpusan. And uh, Aziza is the first girl to get her education in that valley. First and second grade, 
The boys threw stones at her because they didn't want her. They threw pebbles at her to keep her away from school. Third and fourth grade, the teachers refused to teach her because she was female, so she had to listen in or get notes from her peers. When she got to high school, those boys who threw pebbles at her were determined not to let her graduate, so they stole her notebooks. But guess what happened? Aziza graduated, and in 1998, um, she wanted to become a maternal health care worker. Um, this, in Charperson Valley, there's no physicians, no medicine, no clinic, and uh, five to 20 women die in childbirth every year in Charperson Valley. So Aziza went to training. It cost 800 bucks. It took two years. She came back to Charperson. Her pay is about a dollar per day. And since 2000, not one woman has died in childbirth in Charperson Valley. And now, um, I, I, I think um, I'm, I'm trying to really drive home why the time is so crucial and why it's so imperative that we help every child on this planet um, have the right to, to read and write and have that privilege. There was a massive earthquake in Pakistan in October 2005. In Urdu, earthquake is Zazala, but they called it the Qayamat, meaning the apocalypse. And it hit the um, very, it was, I think, eight, was it 8.4 Richter scale. 74,000 people killed. 18,000 of those were children going to school. It happened at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Most of the kids who died were kids who didn't have desks because of corrupt government um, funding. And uh, they were younger and they were female. And uh, 9,000 schools that were cracked or rendered unusable, half a million kids displaced out of school. And it, it was first, it was very tragic. At first, there was incredible heroic effort. The U.S. sent in two dozen C-47 Chinook helicopters, and they conducted the greatest helicopter airlift in the history of mankind. They moved about 20,000 tons up into the mountains, working day and night, and helped about six to 800,000 people make it through the winter. And for that, the people were very grateful. And it was an incredible thing that happened. They're able to fly in bulldozers into these and open up the two main arterial roads into Neelam and Kagan Valley. Without roads, you can't have relief. But unfortunately, what's happened now is that people have left, the media has left, a lot of the aid has left. And in the wake of that, the jihadis have moved in and they're setting up refugee camps. They're providing basic shelter, medicine, and uh, aid. This is the Jamaat Islamiyat camp. It's a U.S.-labeled terrorist organization. They've set up a refugee camp. Down the street, this is uh, just about five miles from a place called Musafarabad. It's the capital of Azad Kashmir in Pakistan. Five miles down the road here is the El Rashid Trust. It's run by Dr. Um, Dr. Amir Aziz. He's a British-trained orthopedic surgeon. He was previously Osama bin Laden's personal previous physician. He spent two years in Cuba, and he's running a refugee camp. And until recently, the U.S. 212 mass unit was down the street also helping out. And they all, they all <clears throat> were helping the people, but they also had a duplicitous agenda in these camps. If you look at this picture, I was showing this up on Capitol Hill, and they told me this is a classified photo. But this is just right beside the road. This is a refugee camp. This is a mess tent here where they get the food, and right to the left of it 
is an extremist madrasa where they're indoctrinating those children into becoming uh, very violent, you know, um, adherers to, to Islam that really doesn't represent what Islam is about. And it only takes about a year, and those kids can uh, be recruited by, by uh, terrorist organizations. The irony, you know, people say, well, they should just shut down the camps, but those people have nowhere to go. Their homes are destroyed. They have no water. They have no health care. They have no food. It would cost about $1 per month per child to set up a school across the street. But the irony is that because um, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization registered in the U.S., we cannot even go into those camps to help set up school because we'd be affiliating with a terrorist organization and we'd be shut down overnight. What the, what's happened is we've set up, I'll say the government, the Pakistan, we've set up viral incubators for terrorism after the earthquake. The main reason is because we're not helping those kids go out of school. This is the first wave of literate kids in the school. And, uh, you know, I'm pleading on behalf of the kids there that we help them and also implore the Pakistan government that you have to help rebuild those schools. Otherwise, we're facing now will be 10 times fold multiplying in the, in the next decade. Was it, was it unconstitutional? With the, you mean? Yeah, but as a, we're a nonprofit organization, so we'd be shut down overnight. So what? <laughs> we got, well, I, I, I agree with you, but also um, we have to, you know, we've got 25,000 students we have to take care of. Let's go. Okay. So this is uh, Noseri Village. There was uh, 24 girls who died in the earthquake. And with the help of the U.S. Chinook helicopters, the mullahs got involved, the communities. Uh, we had Chinese seismic engineers were able to put these schools in. There was no other school, so we started putting in schools in, in this area, in Azad Kashmir. There's, there are the graves of uh, seven girls who died in the earthquake whose bodies weren't claimed. This is uh, Patika, or uh, Gundi Pari High School. Their bodies weren't claimed, so when we rebuilt the school, they wanted to put the graves right around the outdoor classroom in Patika School. And we also are running schools. We have 64, say, buildings, but we're also running several, about three dozen other schools. We don't have the resources, so this is in Maidan Shah. This is in central Afghanistan. And there's 12 ninth graders going to school in an armored personnel carrier. And here's what it looks like inside. They're not learning about terrorism. They're, lear they're learning English from, a, from their teacher. The second graders, there's 80 of them in a steel truck container that was used to bring over U.S. military supplies. So we've converted that into a classroom. And the girls, they don't even have a classroom. They're going outdoors. Some of these young women have walked one or two hours to get to school. But they're determined to go on and, and uh, you know, have, have the opportunity to have an education. And I'm often asked, um, some people say I'm crazy or I'm a very negligent husband. And, you know, my wife, I've told her that any time she can tell me that she doesn't want me to do this. But, but she and my family support... Um, what we're doing, and I often bring my family over to Pakistan and Afghanistan, and it's some of the greatest joy 
um, to in, in what I have in my life. And, you know, it's, it's very painful to be separated from your family months a year. You can talk to servicemen or people who work abroad, and, and um, I've missed seeing, it's probably the most difficult part about my job, I've missed seeing my kids learn how to tie their shoes or ride a bicycle or, or you know, first learn how to walk. But I also feel that, you know, when I look into my kids' eyes, I see the children in Pakistan and Afghanistan. I think that we should do everything we can to leave them a legacy of peace. And I'm kind of an insomniac. I, I wake up about 2 in the morning, and I'll probably wake up at 2 this morning, and I think, and I ponder in my heart, and I think, am I really doing a good thing? Or maybe, you know, I'm causing more harm than good. And I don't really know the answer. But I, um, I often think, you know, in my heart, uh, is this really something that's going to really benefit the people over there? But if you talk to the women there, and you ask any woman in a village, what do you want most in life? And you think most women say, I want a good husband, or I want to become prosperous, or I want my kids to do well. But most women, what they tell me, is they say, we don't want our children to die. And how do you answer that question? I think the real answer is, is through helping with the girls' education and literacy. So some of our schools, uh, Jafarabad, this is Jafarabad here, and this is Kande School. Um, this is Dokluna School. This is in Hushe Village, in Safarabad. This is in Lalander School. You can read about it a little more. It's in Charsiab Valley in Afghanistan. It was attacked by the Taliban this past summer. Um, about 15 Taliban came and attacked the school at night. They took it over. And they said that if anybody comes to school in the morning, that they would, basically, they would eliminate them. And the headmaster, he went on his bicycle about 25 miles to the commandant. He's the local militia leader, and he told them what had happened. The militia leader, his name at the time was Commandant Fahim, he came in with about 120 of his men. Um, he killed two of the Taliban, and he, you know, arrested the other guys. And then he found out that the Taliban had been paid about $3,000 to shut down the school. And they found out that the source of the money was from the local mullah because his madrasa had been declining in enrollment and he was getting about $50 a head. So now the mullah is awaiting trial. But the amazing thing is that two days later, the community reopened the school and today the kids are back in school in the Lander village. This is the Lander You know, I first went there, it was the peaks that first brought me there, but the people that bring me back and back again. Okay, you can go back one. Well, in early 2001, I got to Corfe. This is the ending here. Um, can, uh, I'm just going to say one more thing, and then we can have some discussion or um, move on. When I got to Corfe in early 2001, Haji Ali was very sad because his dear wife, Sakina, of over like 55 years, had passed away. And so, very painfully, we strolled over to her grave, and he looked at the ground, and he said, you know, without her, I am nothing. And then he said something that I would never forget. He said, very soon, you're going to be standing here, and I'm going to be in the ground. And he kind of chuckled, 
And I didn't think that was very funny because I had lost my father and, you know, my sister Krista and all of us. You know, we've lost somebody dear to us and you never get over that. And he said, when that moment happens, you'll be very sad. I want to say, of course. And he said, when you're standing there looking at me in the ground, I want you to do just one thing. I want you to listen to the wind. Listen to the wind. Well, I got there, it was in October 2001, you know, after that very tumultuous period. And I got to Corfe, and Haji Ali had passed away. And so when I got up to that bluff, there was no man to greet me and embrace me with tears and dust flying all over. And I strolled over to the grave of Haji Ali. It was a very simple grave. He was buried facing the west towards Mecca. And I thought, how can I go on? This man had become my mentor and my guide and my surrogate father. And now, what can I do? But then I remembered what he said. He said to listen to the wind. And so I listened to the wind. And in the wind, I heard the voices of the children in the school. And I realized that his vision and his legacy of hope through education had come true. And the candle was shining brightly. And I also realized that I myself had learned a very big lesson because I hadn't found the field of dreams in a cornfield in Darzo, Iowa. And I hadn't found the field of dreams on top of a big bad mountain called K2. But I had found the field of dreams in a little dusty village in a place called Corfe in Pakistan. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes.